Hello. It was once said that the five most terrifying words in the political lexicon were Michael Crick is in reception. He has a knack of uncovering uncomfortable facts, which eminent figures would rather keep buried. And he's also written some superb political biographies, the latest being about Nigel Farage, about to eat worms in Australia. Michael has worked extensively across the main public service broadcasters, starting at ITV. He then moved to Channel 4, becoming political correspondent and Washington correspondent. He joined the BBC as a reporter on Panorama and eventually became political editor of Newsnight, before returning to Channel 4 News as political correspondent. He's now stood back from daily journalism to concentrate on writing and commentating. He's also a great gossip. I talked to him on Tuesday. Uh, Michael Crick, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, when David Cameron walked up uh, to number 10 on Monday and you weren't there, did you feel withdrawal symptoms? I did, I did. Um, I was actually at a, a university meeting, but I'm, uh, I, 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 what, what I'm really worried about is the election next year and not having a job while the campaign is on. I think I've got a, a berth on results night, but I, I just want to be out on the road going to each of the seats and, and watching the campaigns and talking to the candidates and all of that. So if anybody out there is hearing me and has got a little job for me, then I, I'd love to hear from them. I understand that because when I'm in my sort of 20s and 30s, I was always out on election night. I was at Harrow's and Heighton and stuff like that. Yeah. And then the first election when I was sitting at home, although I was doing some programmes about two days later, it was horrible. I didn't know what to do. No. Uh, and, those lo- and, and the long period before... The, the the opinion polls came in and they, they were not that accurate in those days. And then the long way through the night, and you're feeling, what's my purpose in life? I, I don't know what to yes, do. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, strange. that was true. My my friend David Butler, who in later years always had to, you know, because he'd been on election nights yes. way back to 1950. And his last few elections, 2015, 20, 2017, 2019, he found he, he was uh, fortunately his son always found something for him to do. I I, once, I took him actually to the Jeremy Corbyn count in um, in Islington one year. And it's extraordinary the um, the appetite you still have for politics, don't you? Where did it start? I mean, you weren't born into the politics, were you? Your parents weren't politicians. Well, they were teachers, weren't they? They were, uh, but actually they met uh, at the Cambridge University Socialist Club. I think my, one of them was chairman and one was secretary, and then I think they reversed the roles. And this was back in the early 50s. And the Socialist Club was sort of, you know, uh, uh, to the left of the, uh, the Labour Club and sort of, uh, you know, there were probably members of the club who were quite sympathetic yes. to the Soviet Union, although not, not my parents. And, uh, and, but but it, we weren't particularly a, um, a political household. I do remember... Once in the 1960s, I think this is my first political memory in the 1960s, because I'm a fair bit younger than you. And um, uh, you got that one in to, early. Well done, Michael. Well done. <laughs> saying to my mother, you know, uh, how do you get to be king or queen rather? And uh, she explained that 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 wasn't an option for me. And uh, being becoming pope wasn't an option either, which is a strange question because we weren't a Catholic family. And then I said, well, how do you get to be prime minister? She, she explained that. And I said, so... Um, you know, what do you, who's going to be the next prime minister? And she said, oh, well, a man called Edward Heath. And then I said, and what about the current one? And she said, oh, Harold Wilson. I had such hopes in that man. I had such hopes. 
And of course, that has been the recurring theme of yes. people of sort of liberal left backgrounds. Uh, you know, they're great messiah figures who come forward, who's going to change everything, uh, be it in America or be it in this country. And um, I've seen it happen again and again in, in the course of my journalistic lifetime. Well, you, you have a talent still for controversy, mischievousness, uh, some would say... Um not quite wickedness, that's unfair, but you are cheeky. But hey, how did you end up being thrown off GB News last week? I mean, one moment you're on, then there's an ad break, and then you disappeared. What happened? Well, I think it was all a bit of a cock-up, really. And um, <laughs> I think because it was a Saturday night, the, the team on the show probably, were, probably weren't as senior uh, as they would be on a, an ordinary weekday. And I'd been asked to come in and criticise a man called Brian Rose, who stood for mayor of uh, London uh, last time round, and who I thought uh, was rather hypocritically complaining about being censored by YouTube when he himself had censored various people who'd asked critical questions during the course of his campaign and used the copyright uh, laws to try and get them off YouTube. So I, 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 I launched my attack on him and then... Uh, the presenter of the programme, Neil Oliver, said, well, hang on a moment, you believe in uh, censoring us. You think that Ofcom should uh, close GB News down, don't you? You said that on, on this, in this studio a few weeks ago. And I said, I certainly do. Uh, and he said, well, that's going a bit far. And I said, no, it's not. I mean, it's ridiculous that, uh, you know, your programmes are presented by one Conservative MP after another, uh, no Labour MPs. And, and then you have a, uh, Nigel Farage presenting a programme. And when he goes away, he's, he's replaced by his successor as the leader of the Brexit party. Um, and um, this got sort of got a bit heated, really. And then a, a man, uh, the next thing I thought was a man walked in uh, with an Australian accent and looking very, very angry. And he said, you out, out now. And, and I was so shocked by this uh, that I left without arguing. <laughs> and, uh, and I immediately tweeted about it. And um, they were, the high command at uh, GB News actually uh, had contacted me within the hour, but I was at a dinner party, so I, I didn't actually talk to them. It wasn't until the next morning. They were very apologetic. Because actually, I'd said that in their studio at least half a dozen times. I do think Ofcom should close them down. People would say, well, that's hypocritical. Why do you appear on their programmes? And I, I appear on their programmes because I think the argument needs to be put. Counter-arguments need to be put. I enjoy debating. I particularly enjoy debating with Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg. I tend to do his show on Tuesday nights. Um, but I think I have, uh, I am absolutely committed to trying to maintain impartiality in our broadcasting, particularly the broadcasting regulated by Ofcom. I know it's a losing battle in the long term, but I, when I was at Channel 4 News, I felt we veered to the left too much, and I, uh, you know, I fought that. Are you talking specifically that you were a founder member, I thought, of Channel 4 News, weren't yes. you, in 82? I don't mean in the 1980s. I mean yeah. more recently, in the, in, the, in the teens. I think in the 1980s, it was... Uh, there may have been a bit of a problem in the 1980s, but less of a problem then. And I think the overall, the whole channel... Mm. Um, you know, he actually gave much more of a platform to the right, mm. including on one occasion, Jimmy Goldsmith arguing for a referendum. Uh, first time ever, I think, uh, it, for, for the European, uh, our membership of the European Union. He actually did that in a uh, Channel 4 lecture. But you're suggesting that in Channel 4, I mean, it would be understandable when Channel 4 was set up and Mrs Thatcher was in her pomp, that an attitude which was on the whole examining stroke critical of government would have been seen to be anti-Tory. Do you think that afterwards, what happened then in the 90s and early 2000s, do you think Channel 4 then 
didn't re-examine its position and was instinctively Channel 4 News to the left. I think a lot of the time in the 90s, I didn't really watch because I was working for the BBC then, um, but I, I think that by the, by the teens, in other words, the last, uh, you know, the period 2010, 2020, I think, particularly on Channel 4 News, it had become a bit of a crusade against the Conservative government and against Brexit um, under, uh, under one particular editor and aided by some of the presenters. And a lot of us on the programme were deeply unhappy about that. The political team were all unhappy about that because it made, us very, made it very difficult to do our jobs at Westminster. Are you talking the presenters in terms of Jon Snow? I, think it, uh, I don't think there's any secret what, uh, uh, what Jon's views are. And there were, there were, from time to time, he made the odd remark. I mean, my own politics are, you know, broadly, to, slightly to the left. I mean, I'm a centrist to the left, really. But that's irrelevant. I just felt that the channel was being unfair and that when Brexit happened, it came as a huge shock to so many people on the programme. And I thought, that's a bad sign. The programme was not staffed by the kind of people who uh, came from those areas that had voted from Brexit or, and who travelled to those areas. And, and something as big as that should not come as a shock. But people say, of course, it did come shock to the BBC. Uh, whether, whether, and, and, yes. and did you find in your long period on Newsnight... And I would voice this you, criticism... I would voice this criticism of parts of the BBC, I think, at times in recent years. Not so much now, but in the last five years, there have been times from certain people on... Certain presenters uh, and uh, one or two reporters on Newsnight where, where they're, they're, it's been obvious what their political views are. And it should never really... It should never be obvious what the political views of a news or current affairs presenter or reporter are. And I've, I've, I mean, I gave a big lecture about this at Oxford some years ago. So that was my concern about the, the immediate past. But I think it applies you know, ten times as much to GB News, where you have this absurd position where, uh, you know, you've got a whole string of Conservative MPs working on programmes, although Estimate Vey won't be able to anymore now she's joined the Cabinet uh, yesterday. And you've got, uh, you know, not only Nigel Farage, you've got his successor, Richard Tice. Uh, Patrick Christie's used to be Nigel Farage's press officer. Uh, you've got Michel Jubri, who... Uh, used to be a Brexit Party candidate. I mean, it's it's just it, they're taking the Mickey out of Ofcom, and Ofcom don't seem very concerned about this. Well, I think a lot of people think Ofcom are waking up now. I think they've got eleven <laughs> to fourteen or something like complaints there, and I think well, you know, we had they an need earlier, to get a move um, on. <laughs> I know. Well, they have been well. You know what I was told. Whether this is true yeah. or not, I mean, they were told very much Ofcom to make sure that, if possible, GB News establishes itself gets a good ride, they're taking a financial risk, be lenient with them. And I, I do think, uh, I think they took the eye off the ball, so do some others, but maybe it was deliberately so. I mean, but when, when GB News was founded mm. by uh, Robbie Gibby, who was a, a friend of mine and a, and a, and a, and a former colleague, I, I was all in favour of what they were trying to do, yeah. which was in, in the same way as Channel 4 in the, in the 1980s. They were trying to explore... Uh, news, and it was meant to be a news... Ch well, of course, the name's in the title, isn't it? It was meant to be exploring aspects of the news and things going yes. on in this country that don't normally get coverage on television. And I'm all in favour of that. I mean, that's what I've always tried to do. But it gradually became more and more of a propaganda channel, uh, and the people who were running it became more hardline politically, and Robbie left, and John McAndrew left, and Andrew Neil left... And uh, it became more and more of a, a British version of, of Fox News. 
Well, now you mentioned Robbie. You yes. mentioned Robbie Gibb, mm. and of course, some will be surprised that you suggest that he is impartial, because in the view of some people, he's used his role as a non-executive uh, member of the BBC board uh, to, shall we say, to push very hard his view of impartiality. And people point to Robbie Gibb's record, which is clearly a Brexiteer. He was the director of communications, I think, for the previous but one prime minister. Uh, no, Holly, I can't keep up. Two ago. Theresa May was two ago, wasn't he? <laughs> Three ago, okay. wasn't he? That uh, he's never, he's always been political and so on, so on. And that Robbie Gibb has been trying to push the BBC in a particular direction. You, I get the implication you don't think that's true. No, uh, I think that uh, I think Robbie's Robbie's role has changed. I think that when Robbie worked with me on Newsnight as an ordinary producer, I, 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 there was never an occasion where I felt right. What he's doing here is biased. He's trying to promote the Conservative Party or do down the Labour Party. Uh, and I think that people who work with him at Westminster would say the same thing when he was running the Daily Politics very successfully and and that. Uh, series of programmes were all linked together and, and made, mostly pre- presented by Andrew Neil in those days. And I think I, I would say the th- same thing about Andrew. When Robbie moved on to these positions in Downing Street and in on the BBC board, I think his role has changed, although I haven't examined his role on the BBC board as, as thoroughly as perhaps I should have done. And indeed, there's, you know, there are further revelations. In Nadine Norris's book, exactly, yes. yes. And so I think his role has changed there. When we are doing one role, like when I was a reporter, my politics weren't meant to hang out anywhere. They weren't meant to become obvious. I had to, you know, I never told anybody how I voted. Frankly, there was a long period when I didn't vote at all because I felt uncomfortable about it. And I'll tell you something else. There was a, for many decades, I didn't actually have much of a view on many things. I sort of became a bit lazy. I thought, well, I don't need to, I don't need to decide what my views are on this. Um, and it's, but since I, I've stopped being, a mainstream reporter in mainstream broadcasting, and I'm now invited on as a sometimes an analyst, sometimes as a protagonist, I think that's very different. And I think the same is true of Robbie. When he was working for the BBC in an editorial role, I don't think you can fault any decision he made or anything he did. I thought it always astonished me how impartial he could be, given the fact that in the past he'd been close to Francis Maud and Michael Portillo and and figure, leading figures of the of the 90s like that. And so you do ch- the roles do change, but we're now in this situation where GB News, you know, it's just gone. But he, but but Robbie has been said it said that he had a real concern about the BBC not being sufficiently impartial. That certainly the Director General, this present Director General, has talked about the need for the BBC to be impartial and stressed it and stressed it and stressed it and the overall impression is that they think there's a problem now it could be just it's a sensible tactic dealing with this conservative government to keep them on side as far as you can by stressing this but do you think in general terms BBC News the current affairs has a problem with impartiality not understanding it sufficiently I don't no I think uh, I don't think it has one I think Newsnight had a bit of a problem uh, two or three years ago but I don't see it, it as a problem now. I don't think the, the, the main news bulletins do. And, uh, I, in fact, I think, uh, I mean, I think they have a problem with dullness at times and being too pedestrian, but that's a different matter. I think the, the, think the problem, I, I think Radio 4 is liberal left-leaning in just its choice of subject matter. And the, it, during the course of a day, that is the area, if I were Tim Davy that I would... I would look at closely that it's it spends too much of its time, I would argue, dealing with 
questions of race and gender and you know, trans rights. And if you would just listen to Radio 4, you would think that the number of ethnic, minor- ethnic minorities in this country were, you know, say, half the population. And I think there's a liberal left leaning amongst the, the makers of BBC Radio 4, not on its uh, news programmes. I wouldn't, I don't think you, 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 feel, you feel that listening to, you know, Today or PM or The World at One, but in, in, on the, on the programmes in between, the stuff that I tend to listen when I'm on a car journey and so on. And I think uh, that is, uh, and, and, I mean, of course, and always the problem, of course, that comedy is always left <laughs> well, You don't get many right-wing comedians no, no, that's, that's, on, that's on the BBC, a... although, although GB News have, have managed to find <laughs> right. some. I mean, there aren't that many right-wing comedians, and there aren't that. The other problem you have there aren't many. There aren't that many right-wing people in the arts, no. and so inevitably you end up interviewing people in the arts world, and you start talking about what do they think about Trump or what do they think about the government, and it's you know it all becomes highly predictable. Well, I just by the way, just before we finish this section of the interview, uh, if you were given the job of filing Nadine Doris's latest book under fiction, fact, or where would you place it in the library? <laughs> Well, it's tricky because I, I think actually, uh, I think there probably is a lot of fiction in there. But actually, there's, I mean, I've not read it, but, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing so. But from what I've seen of, of extracts as, as reported, she's hit the nail on, on some, of th- some things, but I'd better be careful in this because otherwise I'm going to um, compromise myself. And uh, before we also leave the question of Newsnight, for which you used to work, uh, obviously its future now is under debate. Audiences are down to 300,000. Budgets have been cut, uh, and there is the suggestion that what it will end up being is a discussion programme after the news without original reporting. Do you think that will be a significant loss if that happens? I do, because I, I think, um, I mean, in a way, it, it, you know, part of me says, just kill it off. It's, it's sad what's happened to Newsnight. And there was a time when Newsnight reports were... You know some of the glittering jewels of the of the BBC news and current affairs output. It always had that strange position in between, and of course this doesn't really mean anything to the outside world. But the uh, I mean some of the reports on Newsnight in the days when you used to spend weeks putting things together and getting great interviews and travelling and you know doing proper reporting. Hardly any of that happens these days. Uh, a lot of the great characters who were reporters are no longer there. It's a, a very the team is a lot smaller and. And some of them, uh, you know, I find, I find rather dull, frankly. And I, the whole programme is, I think, rather dull these days. I mean, maybe they just need to scrap it and start again. I mean, for instance, I mean, you'll remember, um, in fact, it maybe is still around, that when, when Ted Koppel used to present Nightline in America on ABC, that was a late-night discussion programme. That didn't really... That had one little report at the start, and yet he did a great programme for, you know, a couple of decades in America... And maybe Newsnight needs to go go somewhere along those lines. Actually, uh, bring in a new great presenter. I think Victoria Derbyshire, although I was a great fan of hers when she started on Newsnight, I don't don't actually think it's working out now. She lacks something. There's something to her presentation. Maybe she lacks a a range of shades, really. She lacks a bit of humour. It's all a bit intense. And so maybe you need a a, a new programme altogether. I mean, you know, after all, they've had... 
uh, the BBC have scrapped previous late night programmes on, on BBC Two. You'll remember from the 1970s. Hey, I edited the Tonight programme when it was scrapped. I had a tendency to bury programmes, I'm afraid. <laughs> you want a programme to be killed off, bring in Roger Healy, do it. Uh, Michael, I'll turn now to your, uh, to your, your career, which always interests me, because um, when you look at where, where, what you did, you know, President of the Union at Oxford, uh, I think you yeah. were succeeded by Theresa May's husband. Um, you edited uh, the uh, student magazine. You set up this, that and other. If you're looking at all of this, you think this boy's going straight into politics into a, and he'll be a parliamentary candidate and he will be in Parliament. And you didn't do it. And you have been offered a seat, I understand, in the past. Was there a moment where you decided, no, I'd like to... Uh, mischief attracts me more. Yes. I can identify the exact day it happened. It was a day in September 1990. And I'd just come back... I'd been uh, the Washington correspondent for Channel 4 News for two years. And I'd, while I was out there, I'd written to a couple of Labour people in this country saying, when I get back, I'd like to fight a hopeless seat. You know, I recognised I wasn't going to get a good seat first time. And I arrived back, and within two or three weeks, uh, a, a by-election arose in Bootle on Merseyside, where, tragically, the second MP that calendar year had died. So there was a second by-election. And I was rung up by two people who later became senior ministers in the Blair and Brown governments. And each of them said, would you be interested in being the candidate? Because they wanted a candidate who was not militant tendency and uh, the left wing Trotskyist group, which had infiltrated the, uh, the Labour Party. And I'd written a book about militant exposing a lot of their activities. And uh, they said, but you have to make your mind up as, as to whether you want to put your name forward by tomorrow night. Now, they weren't offering me the candidacy. They were saying, you know, do you want to be on the list? And I sort of knew that this was a, a turning point because Bootle was the safest Labour seat in England at that time. Uh, I mean, it's still right up there uh, today. And uh, on the other hand, it was clear to me that the local party was a, a civil war was going on in the local party, which wasn't very pleasant. I'm a big Manchester United fan, so that wasn't going to go down very well on Merseyside. But I sort of knew that if I didn't go for Bootle, then I wasn't going to go for anywhere. And I recognised, and also my wife wasn't, who'd worked on Merseyside in the past, worked for uh, Radio City and um, on the Echo, didn't fancy going back there. And um, so all in all, I decided I turned them down. And I knew that that was the turn, that from then on, I was committed to journalism. And no regrets? No regrets? Well, occasionally. Uh, I think, gosh, it would have been interesting to have been a minister. But a lot of ministerial jobs are very boring. Not always. And uh, frankly, I'm, I'm not sure I would have got very far because subsequently you had to be in one camp or the other. You had to be a Brownite or a Blairite in the 90s and, and the noughties. And I wouldn't have comfortably have belonged to either camp. I would have wanted to do my own thing. So I think I might have ended up maybe as chairman of a select committee. But I'm not sure my ministerial career would have uh, advanced very highly, <laughs> assuming I was elected candidate in the first place. <laughs> well, we'd have missed the journalist, but we'd also miss the, well, uh, uh, the, the broadcast journalist, but we'd also miss uh, some of your books, which I think are... Um Gosh, what am I going to say? Undervalued. I mean, I did a, in the 70s, I did some reporting on yeah. Militant, and I thought I did quite well. And your book that you published about yeah. 95 saying The March of Militant was brilliant. And then you did that extraordinary book about Geoffrey Archer, which is unbelievable and true and worth reading again. And now you've just finished a book on, not just finished last year, a book on Nigel Farage, whom you take far more seriously 
than I think and think is a far more significant figure than most people in the industry. Um, did you are you surprised how interesting and uh, you found Farage to be? No, because I've known him uh, a long time, and I was back in the noughties. I mean, this is a, another illustration of the kind of arguments that used to go on in, in television 15 years ago. Whenever I did a by-election, I'd find that they'd got a UKIP candidate, which they nearly always had, and, and include them in my coverage. Because in those days, the three main parties' views on Europe were pre- and indeed on everything were pretty similar, Labour, Conservative and Liberal Democrat. But also because UKIP did represent at that stage and now a, a significant body of, of opinion and I think they they deserve coverage and as a result of that I got to know Farage and he was a you know he was always box office he's a brilliant interview brilliant broadcaster and whenever you did an interview with Farage you know you do five questions and all five are usable and you have you struggle to work out which ones you're not going to use and um and I, I observed the rise of uh of UKIP and a lot of colleagues would say, I don't know why you're giving them coverage. You're only in, you know, it's because of us that because of people like you that uh, they're getting more popular. And I said, this is complete rubbish. They are popular to start with. We should reflect the fact that there is a significant body of opinion in this country that's concerned about immigration, that's concerned about uh, the European Union. And if you just carry, if you just cover the three traditional parties, you are failing to to reflect uh, public opinion out there. And so, uh, and I observed Farage, and I also quickly realised. Uh, and I tried at one point to do a television documentary about him and I didn't get very far. It was very difficult to get, get to get people to talk. And, uh, you know, I, and I got diverted by other stuff. But I realised that just like Geoffrey Archer, you know, everything that Nigel Farage does is interesting and colourful. He never does anything boring. <laughs> Nothing's ever straightforward. And you know that if you dig at any as- into any aspect of his life, you'll come across new details and new stories and that he will just... Bubble as a character. But uh, Geoffrey Archer, thinking they had a very significant future in the Tory party, he didn't. Here we have uh, Nigel Farage, uh, uh, I think about to eat worms in Australia or something, as I was looking up. But after the next election, and assuming that the Conservatives lose pretty heavily, would you be surprised if Nigel Farage is at the centre of a new grouping in the Conservative Party, a very significant grouping? No, I think there's a very good chance of that happening. I mean, the, the way he was toying with the, uh, uh, the Conservative Party at the conference six weeks ago led me to suggest I think it's quite likely he will apply to join the Conservative Party after the next election. And I think, uh, I think it's quite likely he'll then become a Conservative MP. But the Conservative Party is going in two directions at the moment. Uh, because you, we, we saw the conference six weeks ago, which seemed to me it took a significant lurch to the right. And, I, I, and uh, you know, I didn't like it, frankly, personally, as a centrist, a left-leaning centrist. But And, and people like Priti Patel and Braverman and Farage were heroes of the hour. Um, and you also saw decent ministers like Mark Harper and Claire Coutinho coming out with complete rubbish, just inventing what Labour policy was. But we saw with the cabinet reshuffle this week and also... The work I'm doing on candidate selection, that actually the, the parliamentary party after the next election, with the Conservatives likely to be in opposition, is likely to move to the centre because a lot of centrist candidates are being chosen. The right are doing very badly in the candidate selections. They're complaining it's all being fixed by central office and by Downing Street, and they have a point. Uh, but they're doing very badly in getting their people chosen 
and of course the scores of people who were elected for the Red Wall, who tended to be Johnson supporters, Brexiteers, again on the right of the party, most of them are going to lose their seats. So you will see a much more uh, left-leaning parliamentary Conservative Party, and yet the the grassroots is probably more right-wing than ever. And as you know, in terms of selecting a, a leader, the shortlist of two is decided by the, the MPs, Conservative MPs, and then it's elected by the... So I'm not, if the difficulty Farage will have is that if he becomes a Conservative MP, he will find it very difficult to get onto that shortlist, to find enough other Conservative MPs to vote for him. But, as, you know, I, I do see him having a future in the Conservative Party. I think, I think it's 50-50. I mean, you know, he was a Conservative. He was a party yes. member in his, in his youth. And, um, and, it, and, and what's more, round about 2004, it's in my book, he actually made a secret approach to some Conservatives in the Southern England about fighting the seat held, I think it was Tunbridge Wells, that um, uh, Archie Norman, the former ASDA boss, yes. had held and, and gave up after a term. He decided politics wasn't for him. And he had made an approach. This was while he was a, a UKIP MEP and while he was leader of the UKIP group in the European Parliament, he made this secret approach about becoming a Conservative MP. I think there's uh, you know, a, good, a good chance it'll happen. And certainly, and, and the members would love it, the members would love it. And even Sunak has said he'd welcome him. In, not only has Sunak said he'd welcome him into the party, I mean, some, a, a, a minister on the left, Tom Tugendhat, has said he'd welcome him into the party. That was prompted, I must say, by a, a question at my answer at the fringe meeting. It may have been a rushed answer. And he may, he may, have, really wanted, he may, have, wanted, may have wanted to get out alive from the meeting. So he Indeed, had no other yes, option. But I've kept my most important question to the yeah. end, of course, Michael, yeah. which is whether the present Manchester United manager should stay or go. Has he is is his time up? I know this is a, the most important question I could ask you. I know a matter of great anguish, personal anguish, you will now <laughs> feel. Um, so tell me, should he go or should he stay? Well, I you know, well, some one day I think he should go, and the next day I think he should stay. I mean, it's not only is he doing very badly in terms of results; they are terrible to watch, and and, and that is can often be the death knell for a Manchester United manager. It, you know, you survive, you can survive a lot longer in that job if you, you carry on playing entertaining football and still scoring lots of goals, even if other teams are scoring even more. We're scoring hardly any goals and we are rubbish to watch. It's just boring. Uh, you know, I don't look forward to going anymore. On but you still hand, go, you still I, go. I still go. I go to about half the games. Well, normally, actually, about two-thirds of the games. This season, it's been fewer than that because I've just been so busy on other things. It'll go up. And the trouble is, I, I'm not sure anybody else would do the job any better. I think there is a malaise about Old Trafford right now uh, that people who are talented and good, they go to Old Trafford, they become players or managers, and everything, it just doesn't work for some reason. And I don't know quite what this malaise, how, it, how this malaise operates. I think it's partly to do with the overall leadership and ownership of the club. I'm not impressed by the, the non-football people who run the club. I'm certainly not impressed by the, the Glazers. I'm not sure it's going to make a huge amount of difference. Jim Ratcliffe, the boss of Ineos, coming in. Although he is a committed United supporter and does come from Manchester. So we're all in despair at the moment. I mean, we have a lot of sympathy with Ten Hag because last season he did extremely well. Uh, but it's all fallen apart this season. 
Well, I would like I would like at this stage of the you know concluding part of our interview to express sympathy with you, but as a Liverpool supporter since I went to university, I have no sympathy at all. So, uh, thank you very much for the interview, Michael. I'm sorry, I can't extend the hand of sympathy on that issue. Right. Bye bye. Well, thank you, Roger. Well, that's it for this week. For the next couple of weeks, I'll be away, but I've already pre-recorded a couple of very interesting guests who I hope will keep you informed and entertained. They certainly educated me. If you have been enjoying Beam Watch, please support us. It's only £1.99 per month, less than a cup of coffee. It's quick and easy to sign up at patreon.com forward slash Watch. The link to this can be found on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. In return for your support, you will also receive access to my blog, which gives you my thoughts on this week's interviewee. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>